Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. Welcome to this edition of DBSA Real Recovery Podcast, featuring Pulitzer Prize-nominated and New York Times bestselling author, Maria Hornbacher. Today, we'll be discussing Ms. Hornbacher's most recent work, Madness, A Bipolar Life. Hello, Maria. Thanks so much for spending time with us today, and congratulations on the tremendous success of your book, Madness. What an incredible, What an incredible, candid, and powerful story of your experience living with bipolar disorder, and one that's written so beautifully and with such realism. The roller coaster ride, as one critic describes it, left me wanting to come up for air many times as I read about your journey. You, like many others, didn't battle one signal illness, but rather several coexisting illnesses, such as eating disorder, cutting, and substance use together with bipolar disorder. Can you share with, share with us the timeline or sequence of how these all played out and your thoughts on how these illnesses affected your ultimate diagnosis? Sure. As you know, co-occurring or comorbid disorders are very, very common with bipolar and with depression, especially substance abuse. For me, I started manifesting bipolar very, very young. I would nowadays be diagnosed with childhood bipolar, but it wasn't diagnosed at the time. That was the early 70s. Nobody knew about it. Uh, and so I developed fairly young both eating disorders and substance abuse problems, um, really at about the age of 9 and 10. Uh, when those were diagnosed, those became the focus of all of my treatment, of all of the therapy, of all of the doctors, everything like that, and that really distracted from the bipolar. Then, of course, the bipolar goes undiagnosed, gets worse and worse, and so by the time I was 24 and was diagnosed with bipolar, I had a pretty severe case. Yeah, and so you were diagnosed in, when you were 24, though, but I remember from the book, it you really, even at the point when you were first diagnosed, you really didn't, as you say, take your diagnosis seriously um, for quite a few years after that. How? What was the? What was that like? That time period between 24 and when you? I think it was in your early 30s when you started to really kind of take grasp of the diagnosis and kind of manage your own treatment. Simply put, it was kind of hell. Uh, not dealing with my mental illness was one of the worst choices I could possibly have made. Um, it really resulted in, in, in total chaos in my life. Uh, I really didn't understand what was going on. I had, I had a real resistance to the diagnosis. I didn't want to be mentally ill any more than anybody else does. Um, but I also I kept thinking that if I just tried harder, I'd be able to handle it on my own. I didn't need the medication. I didn't need the help. Um, I was pretty stubborn about it. And, of course, that has pretty drastically bad results for any of us. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, another factor that kind of you describe in the book is that that unlike or like an alarming number of individuals with bipolar disorder, it took many years before you even got the accurate diagnosis, especially since you were exhibiting signs from childhood. Um, do you have any thoughts about that and or how that might change for the next generation? I do. I think these days there's more knowledge about bipolar, and that's a huge advantage. However, I think at this point, people are able to say more quickly, yes, you have bipolar disorder. People are not as able to say, now here's what we do about it. Uh, there's still a great, there's still a great deal to learn about the right pharmacology, the right treatment methodologies. 
Um, but I do think we're making some advances in terms of being able to get people diagnosed more quickly because the more quickly people are diagnosed, obviously, the more quickly it can be treated. The more quickly it's treated, the more quickly the progression can be arrested, and that is hugely important. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it in the book, and I think a lot of people in the general public aren't necessarily aware of the fact that, you know, if it's if you have some severe episodes, that it increases the likelihood of more severe episodes and a bigger challenge down the road. Uh, can you just like explain that a little bit to people that aren't familiar with that? Sure. The the easiest way for me to understand it is to say the more episodes you have, the more episodes you're going to have. Uh, and the earlier you treat it, the more quickly you can keep that from happening. Um, because I wasn't diagnosed for so long, I had episode after episode after episode, your brain starts to habituate to that. It starts to develop a pattern of episodes, uh, and it starts to develop the pattern of repeated mania and depression cycling faster and faster. And so when you get it diagnosed young or when you get it diagnosed early and arrested, you can, you can arrest the progression and you can start the recovery process. And you have a particular challenge because of that. I mean, it sounded like you might have been a rapid cycler to begin with in terms of your progression of the illness, but you describe yourself as an ultra-rapid cycler. Yeah, the word is ultradian. Uh, That's not very useful for any of us who aren't doctors. Um, But the ultra-rapid cyclers go up and down over the course of a day. A rapid cycler is defined as someone who has four or more episodes per year. I'll have an episode every couple of months, uh, and then my mood swings occur throughout the day. Okay. That's, That's helpful for individuals that aren't as familiar with that, and that presents some really particular challenges in terms of in and of itself. Fortunately, not... The vast majority of individuals do not rapid cycle or ultra rapid cycle. So um, you had some particular challenges in terms of being able to manage that in and of itself. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I found most interesting now, I'm going to say this in terms of one hospitalization because it was one of the stories that you told, but really there were several times throughout the um, throughout the book that you share that some things like this happened Um a couple times within your um, course of your history that the doctor on staff during one hospitalization, they wouldn't, she wouldn't listen to you when you tried to explain that if um, she put you on a certain medication uh, for depression and sleeplessness that you would spin into mania, um, that that wasn't taken seriously. And you were currently being treated by um, a psychiatrist and, ha- and already was, um, you know, on medication specific to that, but that the general physician that saw you at the time of hospitalization kind of ignored that psychiatric, um, the psychiatric, the psychiatrist recommendation on that. I can't imagine how frustrating and how helpless that might, um, must have been for you and unfortunately how common that is. Um, do you have any thoughts on that and or recommendations for really trying to get your voice heard in that situation? I think it's a very frustrating situation when you run into a physician who's not willing to collaborate with you. And so you really have to articulate the fact that you do know your illness. Of course, that's predicated on the fact that you better know your illness. Uh, if we go in just saying, I don't want medication, I don't want help, that's not useful. If we are educated about our illness and we do know our pattern and we do know what's best, uh, for our given mood states, um, we really can collaborate with the doctor and we have to be our own best advocates. If someone isn't willing to advocate for you, if someone isn't willing to collaborate with you, you have every reason to look for a different physician. 
Um, sometimes that's not, you know, that's not possible. Sometimes you're stuck with the position you've got. And then you really do have to just <laughs> as calmly and slowly as you can say, I am the consumer. I know my body. I know my brain. You've got to work with me here. Yeah. And, and I, that couldn't be stressed enough. And I know that there were, you know, and in hospitalization situations, it's very hard to do that. I know that then you were able to, you sound like you're able to really very much articulate that as much as you possibly could. I think another strategy that, um, I found particularly helpful that a lot of people do, but you really used your support network a great deal to kind of provide some checks and balance for yourself. Absolutely. The people in my life also need to know a good deal about my case because there are times when I can't articulate what's going on. That's very sensible. You know, when you've got a mental illness, there are times when you're not super clear. Uh, and the people in my life, my my family, my spouse, my friends, all know quite a lot about my case. They know quite a lot about my treatment. And when I can't advocate for myself, they can. And and that was great. And it wasn't even just advocating for you on some of this stuff. I thought what was particularly interesting, which is vital, but I, I think what's particularly interesting is that you would work with them in advance to be able to say, okay, um, you know, when I'm there and if I'm in a if I'm in a if I'm in a situation where I'm in front of the doctor and you're there with me and we've talked about this in advance and I've agreed in advance that this is a trigger for me and that I'm acting a certain way, that you gave them permission in essence to call you out on it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's essential because one of the symptoms of bipolar is lack of insight. You know, there are times when I get to the hospital and suddenly I really don't want to be at the hospital. And uh, You are really good at yeah. <laughs> like, of knowing, and, and you're not alone in that, I know, but you were really no. good at being able to know exactly how to get out of that door. Exactly, and I think we all are very good at that, and that is not in our best interest. And so going in with, I mean, I always go in with a list of these are my symptoms. This is what has been going on. Because if I have that piece of paper and I have a person with me, preferably, who can say these are the things that I've been seeing, even if I'm sitting there going, no, everything's great, this is a person who can say, this is what I'm seeing and give an alternate perspective that may be more useful than mine. I thought it was really great because it was like throughout the book, it was a really great balance of self-advocacy in terms of, like you said, being really educated, really understanding, and and then using really strategic strategies to help you at some of the most critical times, um, especially in those situations where you were hospitalized many times and being able to work through that and um and be able to leverage not only your personal you know like not not advocating to someone else in terms of that either from your doctor or from those around you that are part of your support network but working collaboratively with them to be able to make sure that you shorten the time period that you were in crisis as much as you possibly could right absolutely um, which is, you know, and I, we talked a little bit about that or mentioned that, that you are rapid cycle or you have been through a number of um, pretty crisis components um, that that um, throughout your lifetime. Um, but all through that, you were able to be really quite successful. I mean, you admit that when you wrote, when you wrote Wasted, which was one of your earlier books on anorexia, that you had you can kind of profile it through it. You can't even really quite tell when that book was being written throughout this book. So there were many times where you were quite ill, and yet you were achieving really high levels of success. I think that that's, one, a testament to the fact that, you know, individuals living with a mental illness, even when they aren't necessarily at the top of their game, um, can be immensely successful. Um, so that's fantastic. But how was that? 
you know, so kudos to you on that. But <laughs> also, um, how did that kind of play out in your life? I mean, it's kind of a dichotomy in terms of I'm experiencing this tremendous level of success, and yet I'm still not feeling completely in control. I think there's there's two aspects to this. One is that people with mental illness, as you say, can be successful, can be productive. They are all the time. And I think the fact that many people don't see that, don't understand that, is one of the more insulting, <laughs> offensive stereotypes mm-hmm. against people with a mental illness. I find that very frustrating. On the other hand, people with bipolar, as you know, are often uh, a little more hyperproductive when they're manic. Um, and there have been periods during my working life when my uh, productivity level has gone sky high, but then it has resulted in a crash. What I've had to learn over the course of my career and the course really of my adulthood is that it is far more productive on the balance to stay healthy uh, and to produce in a consistent level way rather than go through the, you know, quote-unquote inspired uh, fleets of inspiration that get lots and lots of work done and then wind up in the hospital. Um, and so what I think the the most important thing for me to recognize is that, yes, I can work. I can work steadily. I can work well. But I have got to take care of myself in order to do that. And one of the big things it seemed like in your book that kind of helped you with that was establishing that routine. Absolutely. You know, being able to have that, this is my professional. This is my professional routine, and this is what I do every day, which allowed you to manage that. I mean, although, I'm, you know, it's very difficult to stop when you're on that manic roll. So. Yes. Yeah, so um, there's one of the things I think is really important to to be able to share with individuals um, that's very hopeful is that, you know, you share in your book that you can do everything right at times. Like I said, you can stay on your routine, you can be taking your medication, you can be doing everything you need to, to kind of take yourself well, and there's still going to be times that you're going to be ill. You can do everything right and you can still become ill. Um, and Yet there's that hope. I think it's one of the most hopeful things in terms of the book, especially in terms of the conclusion of the book, that you that you can still that you still need to move beyond that. Um, can you share a little bit about your perspective on that? And because it happens to so many individuals, and we all need to hear that it's going to still be okay. Sure, exactly. I think knowing that you have a very powerful illness, and at the same time you are a very powerful person. Uh, is an important balance to strike. The thing is, you're right, you can get sick even when you're doing everything right, and that's very frustrating. I think what I've had to learn for my own purposes that makes that tolerable to me, that makes that frustration go away a little bit, is that those times when I get sick, even when I'm doing everything right, are times when I can practice radical acceptance. And when I no longer fight, when I stop fighting and being angry and being and struggling against the illness and instead work with it, uh, I am a lot more peaceful. I can find a measure of peace even in that episode of illness, even when things go wrong, even when I'm in a pretty dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds very general, but practicing acceptance is something that many people don't have the opportunity to do in a lifetime. Uh, and we have a chance to do that, and that winds up giving us a much greater level of hope and positivity in our lives in general. What are some strategies for two different things that you mentioned? You talked about practicing acceptance. Mm-hmm. Easy to say, hard to do. Yeah. Any yes. practical components on that? And then also another fascinating point you made in terms of accepting that your illness is powerful but that you are equally powerful. 
it's very hard sometimes for people to accept that they're powerful. They don't feel powerful. They feel anything but powerful. What are some things that you might suggest that, or maybe just things that you do yourself to reinforce to yourself, I am a powerful person? What I do to reinforce that to myself is say, look at everything I've gotten through. Uh, and all of us can say that to ourselves. All of us with mental illness get through an enormous amount. And we've gotten through it so far, and we can get through anything. Uh, I truly believe that, and I'm not saying it simply as, oh, we can all get through anything. We have come through so much, and we are still ourselves, and so many of us have maintained a sense of humor and a sense of hope, and uh, and we have to maintain that. In terms of a practical application of acceptance, little things like journaling, talking to the people in your life, making friends if you don't have people close to you, those are things that are really, really essential in getting some perspective on this will pass. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that this is happening right now, but I also know the nature of the illness is that the episode will pass. And those are those are difficult things to do, and they take some practice, but they can be done. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And um, you just offer a lot of great insight in terms of that throughout that. It's it's quite a journey in terms of in terms of your book and you know it it is really truly a roller coaster ride and i think that what i thought was so great about what you just shared was that i i tell myself i'm a powerful person because of what i've lived and gone through not because i'm a powerful person because i'm maria hornbacher and i'm a best selling author right. I am nothing person, to do with it <laughs> right i'm a person that has been through a tremendous amount and and i came off the other side and i'm i'm great you know, exactly. Which I, exactly. And anybody that's listening to this can identify then with that message. So that's what's so fantastic. Um, on the other hand, you are a very, um, you have been very successful in terms of what you've done. And again, through that course of the book, you kind of understand that you've gone through so many cycles while writing not only Wasted, which is the book on anorexia, not only your novel, but also then this book, Madness, A, a Bipolar Life. So you've achieved that now because it's been such that roller coaster ride do you think you've gotten to the point now where you can really appreciate your accomplishments i think it's not super important if i appreciate my accomplishments okay. i think what's, what's important is that uh i live my day to day and my day to day involves working really hard on my books and i think i think this may be true of a lot of writers you don't pay a lot of attention to what other people think of your work you pay a lot of attention to the fact that today you have to get some pages down and so, and that becomes really the practice of of being a writer. And I honestly think that's part of the practice of being a pretty stable and healthy human being. Is today is what I've got. Today is what I need to focus on. And so, accomplishments, great. My big accomplishment are big accomplishments are my relationships, uh, my my enjoyment of my work, and the fact that I keep myself as stable as I possibly can. And that's an accomplishment. <laughs> and that's going to be everyone's priority. Yeah. You know, in life, it really is going to be everyone's true priority. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, you you mentioned at the end of the book and kind of like when you said, like, every day that I do this. And, and you mentioned at the end of the book that you're trying to picture, this is before the book's published, obviously, because you're writing the epilogue, but you're trying to picture what a day would be like, what your life would be like a couple years from now, which is now, um, when right. the book is actually being read. Um what what uh, have you had any surprises? What are your days like? Is it pretty much what you expected? Is it just a whole new gamble? You know, like a whole new adventure? Or what what is it? What's your perspective on that comment now? I think just having gotten a few more years into recovery, and recovery is up and down. You know, I mean, I know that recovery is up and down, but a few more years into the practice of taking care of myself and doing the best I can with that, 
I have more acceptance, like I said, of the fact that I have an illness. It's serious. I've got to take care of it. I have less anger at the fact that I have an illness. It bothers me less. It interferes, certainly, but I have less anger about the fact that it is. I just think it is what it is. It's the hand I've been dealt, so I play it. Um, I have less anger about stigma. I feel less shamed by stigma and more just, man, that's some, that's some ignorance I'm seeing. <laughs> um, and so I think more than anything, I have come to a more peaceful place in my life. Uh, part of that's getting older. Part of that's being further in recovery. And part of that is really trying to take a hard look at my illness and figure out how I'm going to live with it day to day. Um, and, and so I'm in a much better place than I thought I would be. Well, that's that's fantastic news. That's the that's the right. I mean, that's the answer what everyone would hope for. So that's right. <laughs> that's great to hear. So, um, speaking of, we talked about kind of what today's like, but what's next? Um, do you have any? You know, you're talking about writing every day. What's what's next for Maria? I've got a whole bunch of projects. I've got a new book coming out in June through Hazelden called uh, "Sane: Mental Illness Addiction in the Twelve Steps," which is a recovery guide for people who have substance abuse problems yeah, and mental great. illness. I'm excited about it. It's a neat it's a neat project. Um, after that, I'm doing a second book on addiction, on spirituality and addiction, uh, and I'm working on my second novel. So it's very busy. <laughs> yes, it's very busy. You certainly are getting your work done. <laughs> I am getting my work done. It takes some time, but I'm getting it done. Well, I think it's fantastic, too, especially the you know, collaboration in terms of with Hazelden. And, I mean, certainly, as you know, it's such a common comorbid situation or dual diagnosis Absolutely. that Absolutely. it's going to be really fantastic and I'm sure it'll be really really well received so um, the end of your book Madness um, talks about the you know as you mentioned before the, the limitations in terms of the life living with a mental illness but it really um, focuses more on the great deal of hope that is projected in the future and before we wrap up here, I just didn't know if you had any final comments on, on that for individuals that are listening. I think the most important thing in recovery is hope. Even when it seems like there's nothing to hope for, even when it seems like this day is hell, uh, you get to hang on to that hope no matter what, um, and that is the way to health. The, the hope is how you get there. Um, and when it feels like you're losing it, ask somebody else for it, and you can and you can hang on. And I think without it, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be nearly as healthy as I am. Uh, and there are days it's hard to find. Um, but I think I think hope is absolutely the key to uh, to recovery. Agree, and that's a perfect closing. So, on behalf of DBSA, I do want to thank you for being with us today and sharing your incredible journey with us. I'm really excited about this book and really the new books that you have coming up. And I'm delighted to share that Maria will be honoring us with a keynote address at the DBSA 2010 National Conference this April through May 2nd, April 30th through May 2nd in the Chicagoland area. So you can log on to our conference website, dbsalliance.org forward slash conference 2010 to learn more about the conference and how you can hear Maria's keynote and as well as um, uh, Maria's books are available, both Wasted, and um, which is a memoir of anorexia and bulimia, and her novel, The Center of Winter, are available at most bookstores and on DBSA's online bookstore at dbsalliance.org slash bookstore. To learn more about Maria, visit her website at mariahornbacher.com, and that is spelled M-A-R-Y-A-H-O-R-N-B-A-C-H-E-R. Dot com. That's M-A-R-Y-A-H-O-R-N-B-A-C-H 
com. I want to thank our listeners, and we hope that you'll join us again soon. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help. Thank you.